If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet PlushCare, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, this is Dr. Drew, and you are listening to This Life with Bob Foy and Dr. Drew. Here we are. All right, welcome to the This Life podcast. Uh, I'm Dr. Drew. Bob Forrest, what do you say, buddy? I'm here on the freeway. I'm sorry I'm late. <laughs> Bob Forrest's not just a little bit late. Bob Forrest is, like, like biblically late. Bob. Life, too. What's that? This is life. Yeah, this is life. This is life. Bob is uh, working. Bob is uh, being parented, uh, being a parent, and Bob is uh, stuck in traffic on the 57, but he has agreed to sort of Skype in with us on the phone here. And he's driving in from Tustin, which is where I just drove from. Yes. And I, it took me an hour and a half to get back. So it, he, it might be an hour before he comes. He was at a rehab down there, and I guess yeah. my producing skills were off today because... I've been a little busy with Tustin and the hardware store. Do you want to describe what store. you're doing? Uh, this life with Susan Pinsky <laughs> has been miserable for the last <laughs> month. And um, I'm now the proud owner of a hardware store that my dad left me when so, he passed away so last So Susan's month. dad, at the age of 94, worked seven days a week. 92. 92. No. Um, worked seven days a week until four days before he died. Got sick, lay down, didn't wake up. And uh, he went to this very hardware store every day of his life for 40 years and the entire city of Tustin is in mourning. Yes, they are. And I am the proud owner of a lot of plumbing, hardware, and <laughs> nuts and bolts. The other laugh you hear is Sharon. And Sharon is my workout buddy, who also <laughs> I met working out. And she happened to be friends with Bob when he was in Felonious Monsters. All right. Now, before I... I think there was only one monster. Or is it Thelonious? Is Th- it Felonious? Thelonious. Thelonious. Okay. Monster, Sorry. one monster, not monsters. So, <laughs> yeah. so let's, let's before I let Bob back in here, because I put him on mute while we're uh, talking about Sharon, uh, the, let's, let's recollect about Bob in the 80s. Well... <laughs> there, well, there's a, there's, a, there's a movie now called Bob and the Monster, and uh, it chronicles the whole 80s music scene and Bob's particular role in it and, uh, and his addiction. Imagine that. No, I can't. No, really? Well, <laughs> shocking. Let, let me ask. Let me go back to Bob. Bob, do you remember Sharon back in the day? Yeah, I do. She made our first video, and the part of that video is in the movie. I hope that I hope that she knows that. <laughs> I did not know that, but that's awesome. I I, I was just reminding uh, Bill Pope, my husband, famous cinematographer, that he was there with a camera, a Super Eight camera. Super Eight at, camera. Yeah, at your fir- God, it must have been eighty. Ooh, eighty. 586 wow um and that was just flea, yesterday. And you were recording on uh highland and hollywood with flea is that right wow does that sound right bob that's yeah. Right. yeah yeah that's all that footage drew where i'm like a rock star dressed up in a robe going <laughs> into my apartment that's them shooting it that's when hollywood and highland was not world yeah, Hollywood High was not quite like so Disneyland-esque back then. Well, th- that's how fucked up the 80s were, is that we didn't even think Bob was that fucked up. No, no, eventually we did. <laughs> eventually <laughs> we he got eventually that bad. We, we didn't at, at first. I remember just thinking, like, yeah, you know, 
That's normal. Yeah. Yeah, we all did that, right? And then, then Bob got to the point where people were like worried. Yeah. And and uh, he became, he was the uh, the guy that scared the really serious drug addicts. They were all scared of Bob. Was, was Pete Weiss a, an addict when he was in Thelonious Monster? Not really that bad. It was later once we got going that Pete really got into it, I think. You know, everybody comes to it at their own time in life. I came to it early and stayed late. <laughs> yeah. He came late and stayed a short period of time. Well, that, that's actually very much to the point of what I want to talk about, Bob, which is the whole print story. Now, people are getting very confused about what addiction is versus what chronic pain is versus what pain and addiction versus pain and dependency versus drug abuse. Do you have a way of describing that to people, Bob? You know, the print scene is very confusing. I knew more would be revealed each day. Now right. we find he's got a sober companion who discovered his body. Well, no, no. It was not a sober companion. It was the son. Who was the guy? He's the son of a, quote, addiction specialist. Dr. Kornfeld. Well, that sounds like a sober companion, doesn't it? No, who was, no, listen, who was dispatched by his father that day to bring Suboxone to him to try to detox him. And get him the back to and get him back to no and not a doctor. He's just their marketing guy. He'd be like dispatch. It's like me dispatching Jason Waller with a bag of drugs to another <laughs> state to bring him back to treatment at your facility. There's a lot of people getting in trouble on this. Oh, one. he was going to go back to his facility. Well, that's the pres- I, What do you think? We don't know, but that, that's what do you think? Well, the company, just for the record, the company is called Recovery Without Walls. Yeah, this is. BS like I've never heard before. <laughs> you know what I mean? Where are the walls? That's what I want to know. Well, and, <laughs> You and need walls to keep the drugs out and to know that you have a safe, contained environment. That's actually true. And, and the other thing is this guy was more of a pain guy. He had lots of pain certifications and training. He was not so much, certainly not on the abstinence front. But, but to be fair, think about it this way, Bob. Uh, Prince, maybe he wasn't an addict per se. Maybe he was a drug-dependent, drug-abusing, chronic pain patient. That's so different. It's not. Well, it can be. It can be a little different. Because sometimes you take those guys off drugs and they don't want to use anymore. I, you know, he was the one they'll guy... Still hit you over, if you unmute me, they'll still hit you over the head for drugs. <laughs> Same guy. They're so craving the... the they're so they're as crazy as I was as a drug addict. They're, they need their drugs, and anything standing between, in between Prince and his drugs is going to be pushed aside. It could be true. That's the, how I measure it. Th- that could the be true. Desperation of, of dependency is the same as desperation of a drug addict. I, I, I would agree with you. I would tend to agree with you. But I would also point out that what you don't see with him, although he was abusing all along, he was sort of a chipping at Percocets and whatever we were hearing, allegedly, you don't see the progression and the consequences until the pain thing gets involved. You know what I mean, Bob? Yeah, he also had a couple hundred mil. That doesn't hurt. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> it really doesn't hurt anything, to you be mean, honest. You mean to hide, in order you to hide... Meaning- he never, let's, let's measure it back another way, Drew. He never had a, a, a significant relationship. He never had a family. He lived in a house with no windows. He controlled his universe. And, and that kind of isolation was ripe once opiates hit his system he, to find meaning in life. He, he, and, I don't think and, the guy had a meaning in life. And he was a severe trauma survivor. 
So he'd be great. He'd gravitate to opiates, right? Because he was really injured and he was carrying pain, emotional pain, as well as now some physical pain. And uh, opiates are where they go, even when they're not addicted, right? Yeah, he he found he found the magic potion. Maybe at fifty years old, but he found it. It's interesting. Is there any opinion about this? I am stunned because of all of the people the superstars that I've met he's by far the weirdest mm. and he's also the one I would have bet a billion trillion dollars that he'd never be on drugs because because he was really anti-drug so straight edgy he was so yeah, like he, he wouldn't allow he, anyone in the band to drink beer right he was yeah. taking he, prescriptions Sharon you don't understand the doctor was prescribing <laughs> it don't you understand that's true he it's was different a, it's different the doctor was <laughs> told him he has to take it Oh my God! I am really, I, 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 I do feel like he was walking around on high heels for a <laughs> long time. I can understand how his hip might have de- degraded, and I, I do. It's weird. I know a lot of people in their fifties right now who are having to have hip replacements because yeah. they do like a lot of. They've been doing you know intense yoga for twenty five years, and then they found out that they had hip dysplasia and that's oh. why they could do splits. Oh my God. And that's why they could do And I think, I, you know, judging from the extraordinary dancing that I saw Prince do in the 80s and the 90s, he really seemed like limitless. So, he, you know, I can see him hurting. Yeah. That makes sense to me. Yeah, but the opiates themselves are not, for everybody listening, it's not an effective, good treatment for chronic pain. I, they can be have some utility in use some way, but if you're on an opiate more than two weeks, watch out. Watch I out. I had knee surgery and they gave me 48 Narcos. Perfect. And I was like, are you trying to kill me? Do you know the, the <laughs> data on, uh, uh, Narco is hydrocodone. Yeah. And trade Vicodin, nearly 100% of Vicodin prescribed on earth is prescribed in this country. 81, between 1991 and 2013, 81% of all Percocet prescribed on earth was prescribed in this country. Can you imagine that? I, I'm convinced that by the 38th narco, yeah. nothing really hurt. <laughs> Right. And then it just seems like it does. Well, and, and it does cause something called hyperalgesia, which is a, sort of a sense that pain is hurting. There's a part of the brain called the insula cortex, which is up in front here, and uh, it's the part of the brain that gives the affective component of pain, the affective charge, like the misery index in a way of thinking about uh-huh. it. And that's what goes off the chain from opiates. That just goes insane. I'm miserable, I'm miserable, I'm miserable. Must have, must have relief. And uh, that's when people will pursue it. I mean, it's extraordinary that anyone's able to walk away from it. And you're, I mean, Bob's right. When when you have a hundred million dollars, you know your ability to to camouflage what's going on in your life. And he doesn't. You're, you're right. He didn't have. He was always on his own. He was always. And and Bob didn't didn't anybody learn anything from Conrad Murray? Really, we're going to dispatch one doctor to, to manage one <laughs> drug addict or drug dependent, whichever the case may be. Well. Let me tell you, it was the topic of conversation at the rehab I ran a 9 a.m. group at this morning, and a lot of the addicts, I always listen to the addicts, and they were like, I'll bet you he had the, the doctor had him sign a release of responsibility for the doctor. And I said, where, I said to the guy, where would you think of that? And he goes, a lot of doctors are asking you to sign papers. 
Oh, sure. Yeah, sure. that you're not going to hold them liable. Oh, yeah. But listen how crazy <laughs> this is. Bob, wait. It, to you. It's, how crazy is that? It's worse than that in this case because you have a doctor in California. This is what was happening. It was a doctor in California who does not have a license in Minnesota. Prince lives eight minutes from Hazleton, Bob. Eight minutes from Hazleton. You want to talk about the heights of insanity? He could have Ubered there. He could have, he could have somersaulted there. No problem. He could have taken his high heels and, and skipped there. He might have thought that they had dangerous chemtrails. What is it about them that don't that, that still want to be involved with this high risk population prescribing these deadly amounts of drugs? That they're signed, they're having clients or patients sign paperwork saying. You know, I'm recommending that you not take this, and but I'm going to give it to you anyway. Whatever the paperwork says is crazy. I, I don't know, but listen to this situation. So this California doctor is going to Minnesota, Minneapolis, where he does not have a, a license. He's going to have his son mule buprenorphine and suboxone into Minnesota, where that, that son is going to give these meds to a local Minnesota doctor who isn't certified to administer the Suboxone, we presume. That's what it looks like, because otherwise that doctor would have just gotten the Suboxone. And then that (laughs) California doctor is going to supervise the Minnesota doctor in administering the Suboxone that he's not certified to give. But interestingly, none of that happened because he was dead. I I know, I know. There would have been big trouble if he died immediately after all that going down. But there was intent for all that. It's gonna, well, it's gonna, it's very now. Wait for the toxicology and whether there was subutex or suboxone. Subutex. It'll be subutex. It won't be suboxone. It's in his system. Well, I think it's gonna be. Nah, it's gonna be Percocet and sleeping meds. He was trying to cut down. Didn't sleep for 154 hours. Didn't you hear that 50 times? Well, if he can get his hands yeah. on Percocet, he can get his hands on a benzo. And he'll just put them together and stop breathing. It's, it's, How long had it been since since he, they gave him the save shot? Five days? Four days, yeah. But that lasts a few hours. Yeah. It's good times. It's incredible because... Was the kid on the plane... Here's one thing I didn't know. Was the son on the plane with him that night? The no. Before? No, the son, was, the son was the one that made the 911 call when they found... The son found him and made the 911 call. He just got there that morning with the Suboxone. What? I realized everybody that lives in Minnesota, including Paul Westerberg of the replacements, everybody knows <laughs> the address of Paisley Park. They know the city that it's in. The guy that called 911 didn't know the address of the Paisley Park, nor the, the city that it was in. But do you, know, <laughs> do you understand why? So wait, wait, Bob, you missed why. Do you get why? He's not from there. He's the kid that was dispatched by the doctor in California. It's his son who just know, he just arrived. It's just craziness. It's craziness. Well, yeah. It's and the crazy. son has no medical degree. This nothing. One is not a no, doctor. he's got a neuropsychology psych, you know, undergraduate training of some type. It was nothing. He's the marketing director. He's, he's Jason Waller by, by me sending Jason Waller with a bunch of drugs. Who called him? Although, oh, by the way, Jason would do a much better job because Jason's a recovering guy. This kid isn't even recovering. Yeah. But who called him? Somebody, somebody. One of the inner circle, you know, yeah. demanded whatever. Again, we have the, the addict dictating care. Right. No doubt that came from Prince. So what, what, Sharon, let's get into your history a little bit. So what, what. How do I know Prince? How do you know Prince? How do you know Bob? What's your story? Um, well, it all began. But you got to talk into this thing. It all began many years ago. Um, I started doing music videos in 1984. Um, I was a 
a young unwed mother when I was 16 years old. I had a baby. 16 and pregnant. In 1972. Um, and I kept my baby, which was... Um, Contrary to my parents' wishes, so where were they, you? Uh, I, I grew up in Palos Verdes, mm. and then when I got pregnant, I was put into an unwed mother's home in um, Lincoln Heights called Florence Crittenden. Still home such for. a thing in the seventies? Oh my God, yes! Oh and it was God. it was absolutely awesome for me because um, because everyone there was um, unwed, black, and, and Hispanic, oh. and and deeply troubled, oh. and um, had been thrown out of their homes, and they gave me the strength to keep my kid they were like you don't give your kid up mm. interesting that's what you get to keep yeah so um my parents came to the hospital <laughs> i gave birth by myself mm. to a 10 pound baby when i was 16 years old oh my god and 10 pounds. Uh, were, you diabe- no. were you diabetic i did get a little shot of demerol in 1972 uh. um no i just was i didn't tell my parents i was pregnant until mm. i was seven and a half months pregnant and so i really held it in (laughs) (laughs) then i ate a lot of bacon um between that and the end and um so i had my baby and then my parents came to the hospital and they were you know they they brought me some some an outfit and they were like let's go and i was like no i can't leave because i'm keeping the kid and they were like, no, you know, Grandma Rose does not know about this. What, <laughs> it's what was not your, cool. What was, your, were they, what was their background and stuff? Were they? Um, my parents are uh, second generation uh, Russian Jews mm-hmm. uh, who grew up in Los Angeles. Um, my, uh, my mother is a very sort of fractured personality who was a drug addict uh, for 25 years. Pills? Uh, although she still does not acknowledge that to this day. Yeah, she was a uh, diet pill uh, person. And then she was on a lot of Valium. And then she was on Stelazine. And then she was on, I mean, she basically, you know, I could get the entire neighborhood high on my mom's medicine cabinet. Nice. Did so you? Of I course. did. Oh, yes. Of course. And nobody even noticed. <laughs> so um, any in any case, it saved my life. Um, I've straightened up very quickly Mm -hmm. I became a mom and I finished high school and started working in the film industry I went to um, City College and took film classes started working in the film industry and worked worked my way up to uh, working on the killing fields in 1983 who's the director of that Um, Roland Joffe Hmm. and uh, that was the first really big Hollywood movie I worked on and Right after that, and then I produced a film at the Women's Workshop um, at the AFI that was nominated for an Academy Award. Mm. What film? <clears throat> it's called Tales of Meaning and Parting. It was a short film by uh, directed by Leslie Gladder. And um, now, and then I, and somebody called me and was like, we're doing this thing and we need this stuff like that's that's like lights and things like cameras. And I was like, yeah, like, you need a producer and so that was a music video and it was for Sheila E the glamorous life so that's the first video I produced and I just when was that that was 1984 Mm. and then Prince was at the time um either dating Sheila or not dating Sheila no one will ever confirm or not confirm but he produced her like he was he was the the right he was definitely her he was definitely the writer of the music and he was in control of everything and the first music video meeting I went to was 
Prince, Sheila E., uh, the head of Warner Brothers, Jeff Aroff, uh, Prince's management team, who were all like these mafioso guys <laughs> who we used to call uh, salami, salami, and bologna. <laughs> and, um, and they, they, the entire meeting was the director saying, you know, we're going to make this great video and she'll be bathed in beautiful lights and it will be incredible performances and the usual horseshit that you do when you're trying to sell a video. And then Prince listened and then he said something like, you know, <laughs> and <laughs> like we all said, and we all leaned in to the table and we're like, yes, yes, what, 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 what? And he's like, and then everyone's like, what, what did he, what did he say? And, and somebody said, he said, Sheila should have drumsticks on her pants. Oh, and we said, what? <laughs> and then, and then he left. He literally just got up and walked out and Sheila walked out and they had, I forgot, they had two um, costume designers who were dressed in what I can only describe as purple bathroom rugs. Wow. Um, and th- they left. And then so the four of them sort of stormed out or just sort of filed out or? As regally made their way Floated out. out. Floated out. Top <laughs> down, stout the door. Yeah. And then... Um, <laughs> Jeff Aroff, the Warner Brothers guy, said, there better not be any fucking drumsticks on her pants. <laughs> <laughs> and I leave that to you. And yeah. I, I was, that was my first video. I was like, yes, sir. No drumsticks. So did you, no have, drumsticks. did you have to get things approved by Prince or was it through Shimmy? Everything had to be approved by Prince, but everything that you did with Prince, there were rules and everyone knew them. Which were the like what? rules why? were you did not speak to Prince, you did not look at Prince, you did not pass paper to Prince, you talk to my boss, Simon Fields, who talked to Steve Farnioli, who was his manager, who spoke to Prince. Prince would then speak to Steve Farnioli, who would speak to Simon, who would speak to me. To the point where we were on a set and there was a sound man who broke the rules <laughs> and spoke directly to Prince and what happened? to tell him he was a genius. And Prince flicked his finger at Steve Farnioli, who ran over, and he whispered something to Steve, and then Steve whispered something to Simon, and Simon came over to me and said, you know, Prince says that, told Steve to tell me to tell you to tell that sound guy to shut up. And then I made someone else do it. At least he didn't say... At least he didn't say fire him or something crazy. No, just just shut up. He did have my... 11-year-old son thrown off the set because he suspected him of espionage. Oh, so he's paranoid. Uh, yeah. So he's severely paranoid. Severely paranoid, mm. very strange, bril- you know, just incredibly brilliant and absolutely impenetrable. There's no there was no way to determine what was going to happen. He was he would show up 4 hours late. He would not tell you in advance anything he was going to do. There was no planning. It was all it was like it kind of was familiar to being in a drug environment in the sense that it's pure chaos. What, what would you characterize him as psychiatrically ill in some way or just a personality sort of quirk? Early on, you know, <laughs> I mean, I just thought he was a normal rock star, but he um I we were told that he'd been locked in a closet <laughs> or something. Right, yeah, horrible trauma. Yeah, he right? really had like a bad that that was just we just were always respectful 
and so you sort of I, I said well the, the kid was traumatized let's accommodate him yeah I mean no one likes working like that because it's you know it's you don't it's know it's abusive what's is what it is too Bob you hear all that yes and here's the thing I was thinking you know through I don't know how much you know about early Prince but the first time I saw him he had an album out called Dirty Minds right it was mm. his third album I think there was For You and then one called Prince and then Dirty Mind was the third album I saw him in 1981 he was dressed in a jock strap with leg warmers and a trench coat no shirt no pants he came out looking like a crazed sex fiend rock star god kind of that was his thing but he was playing uh, Flipper's Roller Boogie Palace on Santa Monica Boulevard. Remember this? Oh, my God. Skating thing? Yeah. Flipper's, wait a minute. Flipper's Roller Ooh. Boogie Palace? Okay, my, my, yeah. my partner, Elisa, is doing a television show about Flipper's. Wow. You know Liberty oh, Ross, who just married a Jimmy Iovine? That's, that's her family who owned Flipper's. Crazy. Oh, you're kidding. Well, yeah. you'll know that Prince played his show on starting promo for his Dirty Mind album there. Came out. It was the craziest thing I ever saw in my life. Two, one of the songs on the album is about having an intense, not just sexual, an intense love affair with his sister. It's called The song is called Sister. It's about incest. The chorus says incest is everything it's said to be. <laughs> wow. Is, is he, but so, I, I imagine so people looked at that. To say he was stable, to say he was a stable man, <laughs> I just would, I would veer more towards he was a, he was a non-addict and he became an addict. <laughs> but but he, he also, if he really were psychiatrically ill, how did he stay sort of together all these decades and continue to be productive? You know what I mean? He did two songs well, a day. I think, I think less of uh, less of rock stars in relation to Prince, and think more like Howard Hughes. Yeah, Howard Hughes was Howard strung Hughes out of ha- become, no. It's Howard Hughes strung out of meth. He was strung and became paranoid, and you know, and, and died. Yeah, yeah. is that his, true? In, yeah, yeah, but in his six, in his fifties, sixties, and seventies. Yeah, he had Prince full on amphetamine psychosis. Like that full and on behaving paranoid at twenty four. Yeah, so there's, but I, but it seems like a some sort of personality disorder, not necessarily a. Well, did you disorder. ever see Purple Rain, the movie Purple Rain? You talking to me? Yes. Mm, I don't remember it though. It was it was about his life. Yeah. And he was abused by his father. What happened? He was beat by beaten by his father. Yeah. I mean, I vaguely remember it was like yeah. in the eighties or whatever. Yeah. Um, and I don't remember much. Yes. Past yesterday. Got it. But um, he, you know, he went. He it was a. a the history of him coming up in the clubs and and how he was coming from this abusive family his his mother was i think she was um she was she was um latino and then her his father was black and he was a lousy father and he used to beat the crap out of him and then you know how he came into becoming prince eventually mm. in the it's and he has I don't know it's just Bob did you see it a terrible abusive yeah, well, childhood yeah oh, I've I've seen it a, I've seen it a hundred times me too the fact is his father was a very successful jazz musician probably drug addict um because that era musician 50s 60s jazz musician um but I keep I keep you know it takes a lot to shock me and the song Sister by Prince 
shocked me then when I heard it when I was 21 years old. It shocks me now that somebody would write a positive lo- song about incest. But it and, seemed and, like... And nobody say anything about it. Well, it seemed like, well, that's weird. That's weirder than the song. But it seems like back then that's a lot of what he was doing, though, was trying to shock people, wasn't it? Well, yeah, he was doing it. Yeah. I well, mean, darling Nikki is... He was is... amazing. And that's, that's what I loved since. I was a Prince fanatic. Those first... That, that album, Dirty Mind, and the next album called Controversy. And he was... It was obvious he was not a well person. Well, care. hang on, Bob. Hold on. Let, let me ask this question. Sharon, you knew both Prince and Bob Forrest. Who seems sicker to you? <laughs> <laughs> so so you and your glory, my friend. <laughs> I actually, to be honest, I think Prince might like, be crazier. That going too far. No, no. Prince is... Prince, I just saw... I, I really was amazed recently. I Well, at least you had a reason to be crazy. Let's put it that way. No, he believes he believed that chemtrails were poisoning black communities. Say it again, what? I do think he is a tip of the iceberg of what's become in America. He was able, through religion, to be a teetotaler, to stay away from drugs. He had all these personality problems, trauma, abuse, uh, paranoia, whatever was up with him. That was going on, but he was not abusing substances. But the American, the way the American medical system is set up, eventually all people will be exposed to the magic potion that might fit who they are, which is opioids. If every if every person in America is going to get exposed to opioids, then all anybody who has a predisposition to addiction is going to become a drug addict, and that's going to be thirty. 40 million Americans. I, I would argue, again, the trauma survivors are going to get their own version of dependency or something. It's not really addiction. It's just we have so many trauma survivors that are seeking relief in substances, even though they're not really addicts so much. You know what I mean? It's not the progressive consequences but and I all think, that. I think you're really seeing that there was no history of abuse from, say, 19 to 48. No, they're right? saying so no, no. They're saying now. Abuse. No, wrong. They're saying that the stepbrother or the half brothers were d- procuring Percocet for him twenty years ago for a, over a decade, and he would use it after the allegations are that he would use it after concerts. So he was sort of abusing it all along, but never exploding with it. You know what I'm saying? But, yeah, or using it as prescribed. Well, but, but, whatever. I mean, I don't know who's going to prescribe that you like know, that. This is, but. A rabbit hole we, this is a rabbit hole we go down now about addiction in America. Because at least 50% of the drug addicts in America, what I consider drug addicts, are addicted to prescription drugs. Oh, yeah. And, what, they, and when they die, they, they die of prescription drugs. They don't fit the model of me, of my life. I want to be a drug addict. I like drugs. I like being high. I take them to get high, to explore the unknown, to push the envelope to kill my pain I do it for a million reasons and they're all great <laughs> this is a whole generation of addicts that just use drugs what they think in their own minds to get rid of their back pain or their hip pain or their leg pain or the surgery they had or their shoulder did you but hear it's about not really did, that did you hear about this new and, and they're magically trauma survivors did you hear about this new movie Charlie that uh, Rob Reiner's doing with his son Nick I think I heard a preview of it, yeah. He, he Nick was sort of, his identity was drug addict, which is sort of what you're talking yeah. about. He's one, of, he's one of the few that uh, made that his identity and, and eventually recovered. 
But I, I want to get back to Sharon's experience with uh, with Prince. So you, you were there. You're, you've got sound people getting, you know, summarily shut down. What else happened? Um, well, we we were on Wind Doves Cry, which is the first video I did for him directly. <clears throat> we had a they had a nominal director, Larry Williams, who was a photographer, and uh, what does basically, nominal mean? Th- it means that that they would hire somebody to come in and organize some stuff, and then he would fire them. He was the nom. That's the nominal director. Yeah. They, so, so the concept for the video, which is usually the the routine, is that you get this, you get the song, you listen to the song, you write a little narrative called the concept. Y- you he, meaning the producer or the, or the, the director? director? Director. Director. Or, or the director and producer. Well, yeah. how, whatever the combination is yeah. in, of the creative team. Yeah. You go back to the artist, and the artist d- decides if that's what they feel comfortable yeah. with uh, representing their music. With Prince, you um, they sort of hired a director at the very last second. Mm. We knew the song was already a huge hit. The the film was already a huge hit. The song was out. Was that from? <clears throat> that was one of the biggest hits ever. The film? Yeah, When Doves Cry is from Purple Rain. Uh. And um, the song had been out for eight or nine months. It was. It's very unusual that you would release a song like that and it would go to number one. And it, it was a really interesting experience because there was very little presence of black artists on MTV. Oh, so it was a well, big Jan- deal. Janet Jackson, I remember, was big then. Uh, Janet Jackson was not big then. Uh, Michael Jackson was big, had yeah. had had it, but he he wasn't really considered a black artist. They the whole thing about MTV is that they considered themselves a rock station. They really looked at themselves as a radio, yeah. as, as an extension of radio and yeah. and Sesame Street <laughs> combined. So they did they they were really stuck in the segregated concept of what a radio station was in the 70s and 80s hmm. which is you're either a soul station or a rock station and they considered themselves a rock station and so the people who could make themselves into pop stars and were wide enough to get on MTV were people like Michael and Prince really walked into that and he had a really he had you know, really controversial edge sexually. He seemed, uh, he, he was very androgynous. He, his band was really strange and his music was, uh, you know, upfront sexual. I mean, Darling and Nikki, very Darling exploitative Nick, of women yeah. as well. Like the, he used women. Remember he brought all the women out that were the, the well, he had rock Wendy, stars. And well, the, he had Wendy and Lisa and they were, they were dressed kind of like hookers with heels and then he had a guy who was dressed as a doctor no one knows why he was <laughs> not a doctor and um he had a guy who held a mirror for prince to look at after he did the splits around <laughs> so the band is, is this is this when they performed or is yes. this during the video yeah this is both that this is the revolution this is prince's band in 1984 um i think there was band for about three years and wendy and lisa were gay and um, i've read interviews with with wendy um, who went on to marry Lisa Cholodenko, uh, where she said that Prince rejected her on and off uh, because of her sexuality over the years that she's known him. Rejected her as a friend or as, as a, a friend partner? and a fellow musician, yeah. and uh, you know asked her to repudiate repudiate her, what her sexuality and come was, to was Jesus. He, was he gay or straight? Do we know? Um, well, he was. It, you know his reputation was extraordinarily straight. Mm. It, you know, I I know his ex-wife Maite Garcia. She went. She was on the panel at 
Miss Nevada. Mm-mm-mm. He had many, but they couldn't. They had, they they couldn't have a baby, and then it didn't work out. Anymore. Well, every woman that has that I've spoken to that was with him always says it was. I don't know. It was weird. It was something. You know, they, they were like <laughs> like they they talk with their eyes get kind of like. Uh, you know, my auntie really adores him. him. He, she's she's she had a really good relationship with him, but it just didn't work out for some reason. It wasn't, but it had something to do with the child. He never. He had. He have kids? No, the baby didn't make it. No, he that's right. That's that one. Okay, it, right. Yeah. That was really bad for them. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Were you around during that? Lovely no. woman, by the way. Yeah. No, I really was only. I only worked with Prince for a couple of years, mm. and he was so crazy that um, it wasn't something that I really wanted to do again. <laughs> so I'm trying to I'm trying to characterize what the crazy is. It's so super reclusive, super unapproachable, super paranoid, profoundly controlling. But in but but you know a bringer of chaos. What did you say about the contrails that it was affecting? Oh yeah, he believed that. I just saw this. I I I was looking up Prince, and I, I you know in my grief I was looking at Prince stuff and I saw this interview, and he was interviewed with this guy and he said yes well I I Dick Gregory uh, you know talks about chemtrails and I, he really moved me and I realized that this is true that the chemtrails that that would appear ostensibly when jets go overhead so, were, so were provided by the U.S. government to bring violence to black communities. So just condensation. <laughs> condensation of No, no, they're gas. I they're understand. gas fumes. He's looking at condensation in the sky, clouds, and the, yeah. those are, okay. This is <laughs> yeah. apparently a conspiracy did he go to, theory. He, as brilliant as he was as a musician, did he go to high school or college or anything? Do we know? No. I doubt it. No. I mean, I, I, I don't think he, you know, that was his... He, he played... The, the the comparison people are always doing is they're like you know Beyonce is an artist of extraordinary you know singular ability and then she has something like 115 writers per song yeah and then you look at Prince and he's played you know on one song he'll play 25 instruments and there's one writer him and and one person who plays every instrument and that's him so he's he was a he was a he really was a singular personality in terms of his gift and his um, weirdness. He was well, very but it, it was not. It's not hyperbole to call him a musical genius. No, Bob, you agree with that? The guy was amazing. It, it, let's face it; it doesn't really matter to young people, Prince or no Prince. It matters to people our age, <laughs> and and <laughs> it, it's true. Everybody, oh, I fuck. love this cult of nostalgia test that happens every time somebody. Like Michael Jackson, Prince, um, you know, the next musician that dies up the music that we love. I was actually talking with some friends. Who would be the biggest rock and roll death where you would just, it would just never end? And it's probably Paul McCartney. If Paul McCartney died, it would be Beatles for the next seven months. Right? I, I'm but afraid, though, is, Bob, I'm afraid that there we're, we're past the age where there's going to be a gigantic reaction. I mean, George Harrison died with the practically no nothing. And uh, I, I think, you know, Mick Jagger could die, and it'd be like, eh, that guy. I think if Drake dies or Rihanna <laughs> right. or Beyonce, right. you're going to see an apocalypse. Young, yeah. Somebody, yeah. Yes. But, I mean, what is it about the 57-year-old that doesn't believe they're going to die and doesn't have a will? I don't know. I mean, well. young people are voting for Trump. I don't know what's he going didn't on. Have I don't know a what's will. Going on. He didn't think he was going to die. He was yeah. a drug addict. And he didn't. He didn't have a will. 
Well, drug addicts are not, you know, organized. <laughs> as, as my social worker friend told me, you know, and people that are, in, are into drugs aren't into things like insurance. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's still, I have to say, it's really shocking to me. That he died. Yeah. It's shocking he, to me he died. It's shocking to me that a 57-year-old man would, would die. Uh, uh, well, I mean, first it was like he died of the flu, and it okay, was well, the flu is horrifying. Just, yeah, the flu is just him <laughs> in opiate withdrawal. But yeah. when a young person dies today, it's prescription drugs. That's it. That's that's what people, or, or some sort of, you know, unforeseen, real significant medical issue. Uh, do you think there was a possibility of some underlying medical problem? Was that ever rumored or? That's definitely been rumored. What, but what no, been, you know, it's it's a national inquirer, so you know. The rumored to, HIV kind of thing. Yeah, they're ru- rumoring. Yeah. Is there anything? Any that would have been acquired through homosexual activity or too much heterosexual or drivey drugs or what the hell would that even be? Well, you can obviously you can get it from heterosexual activity because you it's know, hard. Not easy. A lot of people in yeah. Africa haven't. Yeah, yeah, it's not easy, but uh, yeah. Uh, but Prince, if anybody was going to try hard, I guess it'd be him. So was he super sexually active? Is that yes? Oh, so we knew that was known. That was known certainly to, in the eighties. I knew lots of people who slept with Prince. In like weird multi-partner thing or that kind of thing? No, he was just like, he was just like the, you know, the shit. He he was considered, even though, you know, he's almost like, to me, he looks like a silent film star. Like there's something so (laughs) exaggerated about all of his sort of sexual antics it never seemed that but, sexy to me but well, he was, was very s- to was, his peer group he was super but i was sexy. gonna say he may have seemed sexy but in somebody that won't even speak or make eye, t- eye contact how does it ever a sexual contact that, that to me is weird I, I, you know what i'm saying he um he he maybe he had eye maybe it was when he was alone with them you know that people were so flattered i mean you cannot underestimate the amount of power that you know a rock star has sexually they just it just their being it doesn't nobody cares if they're nice or they're they make eye contact i was listening to the foxhole because that's my favorite station and this black guy was like talking about how his girlfriend had a picture of prince over her bed and she was in love with him and then when she when he met prince and his girlfriend was there he pulled up her skirt and he offered his girlfriend because he knew that you know he wanted to give something to prince and it was a joke you know the yeah women would just and she would do it you know and, and and men would just throw their girlfriends at him because he was so sexy and that was that was what he was saying it was like he had this thing he could just hmm. draw women in and this I know. <laughs> Maybe he had a big penis. I don't At know. Four foot eleven. <laughs> yeah. No, my husband just said. I said, "What was your experience with Prince?" And he said, "He was he he was getting something in the refrigerator, and he had to get come in under my elbow." <laughs> so, oh, well, your husband was involved with him. Uh, well, he was. Um, when I started doing music videos in 1984, my husband had gone back to. When I met him, I hired him as a um, cameraman, and then. He, we moved in together when I was like 25, almost instantly, and he started to feel, I already had a nine-year-old son, which he adopted, so he felt like he should go back to school, and he was, he went to law school, so he actually became a lawyer, and I kept, as soon as I got into the music video world, I kept making him do all my camera work on these rock videos, and then I slowly sucked him back into them, the film industry. (laughs) And, and he, when he was working with Prince, it was with you. He did when Doves Cry, and then he did another 
Um, he did a, a concert with Prince later that I had nothing to do with. So, yeah, he... he Does he have any other stories or impressions? Uh, pretty much every story about Prince is about how he wouldn't talk to you. Every story... I heard Kevin Smith give a lecture about Prince that's 45 minutes, and it's all about how Prince wouldn't talk to him and how he went to work for Prince, and he was there for days, and Prince ignored him, and Prince wouldn't come to the to the set and friends you know it's always the same story it's this people just admiring and worshiping this guy and going there and getting you know just having him you know control every single and where was the chaos just not showing up literally not showing up literally not showing up and then up. you couldn't work four, four and a half hours late and then insisting that everything went through him so you couldn't get anything done i did a, i did a video for Sheila that he directed and he and I said, so what is the idea? And he's, and they're like, we're not going to tell you. And I'm like, well, what day are we shooting? And they're like, we're not going to tell you. But get a bunch of equipment, put it on order for these four days. And I'm like, well, do you want to shoot it in 35 or 16? Get both. And, and who get are both cameras. Who, is, get who, who are you dollars. talking to? Who's the we? Steve Farney, I went through, it had bologna, bologna, down, salami. Yeah, bologna, bologna, salami. <laughs> and then to, to, um, to, um, are those Simon guys still Fields, Janice, Janice Dickinson's first husband. Were those guys still in his life until recently? Or are those long? No, long, they, he went. He must have gone through, you know, a hundred of them. And are there any of those talking now about what that was all about? Steve Farnley's dead, mm. and uh, at his death, he was managing a Wiccan band. Fantastic. <laughs> Wait, can't hear you. No, Simon Fields was uh, Simon Fields was my boss at Limelight, the production company I worked at when I did the Prince videos, and he was married to Janice Dickinson. Oh. That was her first husband. Bob, anything to add to this uh, description? I'm, I'm still trying to figure out what's going on with him. It's so bizarre. He was a musical genius. I think I was thinking when you guys were talking about, you know, one thing you don't get through is Bob Dylan, Prince. Um, these really obviously kind of mentally ill people yeah. have music and music is better than SSRIs for them it's better than Depakote <sighs> and so they learn to use music as a way to quiet the voices or to settle their soul or to lift their spirits or to keep them from committing suicide and it, it becomes a thing that that if you look at Bob Dylan and Prince, they're more alike than Michael Jackson and Prince. I, I think you're right. Bob, I was, Dylan yeah. is, Bob Dylan is on a never-ending tour. He doesn't know what to do with himself other than play music. And Prince would do that consistently. You would hear, oh, he's playing House of Blues. He'd, start, he'd play a show, then he'd be at House of Blues at 2 in the morning, and he'd play till 6 in the morning. What kind of normal human being does that? He was touched by the gods or by whatever you want to call it to play music the rest of life he couldn't fucking figure out how, how you as a musician how do you understand you're, you're a musician you're a clinician how do you really understand this I understand that music is so well, that we should study it what it does to mental health to, to bi neurobiology you know um, what's his name wrote this book about music and, and the brain what's his name uh, uh, sax Rob, uh, um, yeah, well, uh, okay, he yeah. just died. Neurologist. Well, I think you can. Yeah, also yeah. He he wrote a book about it, and there's something about schizophrenia or paranoia or these mental health issues that, if for some reason, music is a way of coping 
and I think Prince was in that category. How, how about I'm, lo I'm looking category. at a, look, I think John Lennon was in that category. I'm looking at an iTunes U lecture called Empathy Through, With, and For Music. And then the Evolution and Neurobiology of Musical Beat Processing. These things sound interesting yeah, to you? I think yeah, Prince people are studying music it. to quiet, quiet his voices, quiet his soul, quiet whatever. You know, all the other stuff of perversions or sexual orientation comes from the trauma. But I think that he was a deeply troubled neurobiology, and somehow music was this thing that, that saved him. And in the end, the American Medical Association and the way we do medicine in America it didn't, didn't serve them very well at all. American Medical Association? That's a lobby group in Chicago that has no relation to anything well, any of us do. The, medical, the, medical, the way we do medicine in America didn't work very well for Prince. Right. And when, what are we going to do about it? Sure. Yeah. Well... Um, I must tell you, it's it's watching you know that guy dispatch his son to go collect Prince or you know whatever they were doing or giving him Suboxone or whatever. I, I thought to myself, oh, I'm so glad I'm out of this. The it's thing just is, so disturbing. The thing about the music industry that's that's really you cannot hide from is that it is a industry that's designed to um, placate adolescent need. Yeah, and so narcissism especially adolescent narcissism is not just encouraged it is it, glorified you know, it's glorified yeah. and so when you have someone who's got untreated narcissistic personality disorder for 30 years yeah. you know the, they're just even for 10 years i mean the people that i was dealing with over and over this is what you see and you you look at these movies about amy winehouse and janice joplin and Jimi hendrix i mean it's the same story it's so boring you know, right? it's actually that, boring to watch because because you just see the same fucking story well, over and over. Drug addict, drug addict, drug, drug addict. Yeah, like yeah. you know, it's, some of this narcissism is drug addict stuff. You know, grandiosity and stuff. It's not addict. interesting. Prince actually was interesting in his weirdness <laughs> before he was a drug addict. And I think I think he was so strange and and you know he would come and make the weirdest demands. He, he at one point when we were doing a scene, he's like, "Get me a bathtub, you know, a hundred gallons of hot water." And and paint this set purple and get a bunch of doves. So we go out and we get all this stuff. And, you know, it's all at the last minute. And then we had like 50 bathing suits for him so that he could get into the bathtub and not be stark naked. And Why he, 50 bathing suits? Because you, he wouldn't tell us what which his one? size was uh. and which one. <laughs> so, so we had to have everything waiting. And so we have like all these like thousands of purple banana hammocks and whatever I, I to me that seems so I would have no patience for that <laughs> well you know it, it's your job like you're getting paid so you know it was my it, I was getting paid for me the most money I'd ever been paid so I thought it was kind of amusing and he made them go out and get him long underwear you know like for for extreme cold weather long johns. and then cut them down to a thong oh really yeah and that's what he wore into the water so that I guess his testicles would be cozy. <laughs> Did he wear them under a bathing suit? No. He just wore the thong. He just wore the thong. He had it designed specially for him. And everything, people always talk about this with Prince. He never, ever wore like shorts or sweatpants or jeans 
every outfit ha- was designed. A, a lot of people, though, you know, it, it's hearing these stories very different than some of the stories I heard about what he was like much later in life, oh. where he, you know, kept people around him that were substantial people. I, I know Van uh, Jones, the guy from yeah. CNN, the guy I know, he, you know, the guy rushed out of the White House, you know. And, Loves and, him. Loves him, but but sees him as a friend and a confidant and advisor, and felt that he was always inspiring him and encouraging him to do more. And it sounded talking to Van, it sounded very uh, collegial slash almost professorial mm-hmm. the kind of relationship they had. Did that? Did do you think he evolved to something more? No, I think he was into chemtrails and the Illuminati. <laughs> even I, even I, now, I, even yeah, as an adult. I mean, I've seen the, the interviews; they're, they're incredible. Lately, but, yeah, and I I do, I think he was still you know really. You know, hey! Oh my God, Bob just walked in. Was I live and breathe? How are you, kid? We got to get you a mic. There's a mic right there. You can grab. Oh, here we are. No, you're all right. He's gonna pull all the stuff down. There it goes. Oh, there he goes. I keep my foot. Welcome back. There you go. This is life, Drew. This is life. Well, that's what we're we're showing in real time. Oh my gosh. Holy no, he can, moly. He, if you can calm down, he's welcome to I've been listening on my it's phone. It's interesting, isn't it? Now, I, I don't think Prince got less weird. I think that his extraordinary generosity, financial generosity towards, you know, the which black was, community which is was, beautiful. It's amazing. Yeah, I mean, there's there's so many things about this guy. It's at least what came into focus for me later that were really extraordinary. But yeah. you didn't hear from Van the whole thing about the chemtrails, which is what he no. really was concerned about. No, I didn't see that. Hear that, and, I, and 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 everyone kind of looks at me like, well, there's something you'll you'll find out at the autopsy. There's something, something. You know, everyone sort of looks at me like there's something coming on. And I thought, oh, all right, that makes sense. He had some kind of chronic medical illness, and maybe it's HIV, maybe it's sarcoid. I don't know what the hell it is, but I I think that's why he was interacting with the medical system so much. <laughs> And somebody like him interacting in the medical system eventually, guess what, going to get on painkillers, right? Especially a guy that was using it periodically as a younger man, allegedly when he came to come down from performing. That's What's what interesting to me is here's a guy that didn't trust no one, trusted nothing. And all of a sudden, he's just going to walk into any pain clinic and any Walgreens and just start taking poison. Yeah. Which occurred. Uh, yeah, according to him, it would have been poison, according to his religion, according he's to. right. You know? He's right. <laughs> no, he's not. It's medicine. It's supposed to help you. What are you talking about? It's crazy. How many of our patients do we have to put in the ground before people get the message? Are Jehovah's Witness anti-drug? They're they're really they're a little bit, I think, but they're they're they will follow doctors' orders and that kind of stuff, but they um, don't go for the um, transfusions. That's yeah. no good. And I wonder if he, no transfusion, that's fine, but why not the um, autologous blood then? You know, why didn't he, because he needed a hip procedure or something. They said he didn't get the hip procedure because he couldn't take transfusions. Why didn't he donate his own blood and then get his blood back? It's called autologous transfusions. Why didn't he do that? That's that's for God. That's pro-God. That's okay. <laughs> that's, that's the God way I, of doing Yeah, that's things. the God way to go. So when you guys knew each other, what was the deal? <laughs> what was happening? We were just having fun. It was the 80s, Drew. You should have been there. You I were in med there. school. You no, were in med school. I was in med school, but then I saw you, <laughs> and you scared the shit out of me. <laughs> <laughs> it was a good time. No, it was a few years before that yeah. when we knew each other. It was fun. It was a great community of film people and music people, and we all worked like all of Thelonious Monster and Chili Peppers and Fishbone and all those bands oh that I grew God. up with. All kind of worked on rock videos in our spare time. We'd load trucks or be. be. I remember we were talking the other day. 
We got, did you do the Susie and the Banshees video at Stardust Ballroom? No. I got paid fifty bucks to be an extra, and I did, and fifty bucks back then was a lot. I uh-huh. I just decided that's that's too much. Sixteen hours for fifty bucks. Fuck it, and I never did it again. But you know, there was a lot of musicians that were paid extras on the Prince video. Raspberry Beret, the guitar player of the Foo Fighters, is sitting on the stage clapping along. Uh, Pat Smear, his name is, wow. for 50 oh bucks, 100 bucks or whatever. That's right? hilarious. And so this whole community of music, it was when music television started, and it was musicians well, in this film community that we all knew each other. Guy, Pete yeah. and John. And Pete and John, the bass player and drummer and Thelonious, were sound guys on videos, playback guys. But my, my question is the, the perspective that, that sort of younger people may not have, of what the music video was then. Did you understand what you were getting into? Was it just sort of an extension of the record of a, of a album? I mean, did, you, did you really think you were developing a new art form? What, what was your perception of what you were doing then? Because it was a brand new thing. I mean, when you talk about doing that Sheila E. e- video, you probably didn't really even so know were, what you were doing, where it was going to air, who would see it, right? It was considered porn. I mean, it was really like the lowest, scummiest part yeah, of I don't the think film you industry. A- and then we became gold. Huh. Within a year, we but you did the revolution commercial for Be- for Beatles Revolution for Nike, right? Did you no. do that? No. Well, the whoever cut might have been Fincher. Who did it? Maybe Fincher. Okay, so Fincher. whoever edited that video, ed- edited or edited the revolution, which was that was an, an innovation in in cutting and editing, mm-hmm. right? That's why it's fast cuts, a million shots. That came from our community in Los Angeles. Mm. Right, mm-hmm. that kind of like let's try something new. Just fucking have what, a thousand shots What video shots sort of broke through? What made it go from porn to extraordinary? I well, Super Tramp, the seven minute to Super <laughs> Tramp <laughs> video that no, I worked on. I think on. it was we. I did did the first, you know, three or four Madonna videos, and what happened to me personally is that I went from being. I mean, I was working on features, and no one would talk to me because I didn't have any I I wasn't in a union I Mm -hmm. didn't have any connections I was you know really an outsider and all of a sudden I was at the head of this community that was really changing things in terms of how popular culture hit that's what it was what happened which is extraordinary is that no one had ever considered that that teenagers were going were a commercial force because they didn't make their own money. They didn't have credit cards. They didn't have any... I mean, remember but, but the 80s... But clearly that was happening with so-called records. It just they didn't know they could put it on TV. They didn't no, know they, that they would break into the marketplace, yeah. that they would they actually They didn't know that they could sell so many products, yeah. I think. Other products, And so there was records. this yeah. advertising meets image meets uh. branding that Madonna represents uh. ideally, uh-huh. ideally, right? But it was just cool because the community itself was so... Tight knit. Was it like KK Barrett, who's won an Academy <laughs> Award, I think, for art direction, it was the drummer in Thelonious Monster for Oh my a while, God! And well, the guitar player. What was it like working uh-huh, with? And you Ma- know KK. Madonna <laughs> KK versus Prince. KK was on the first video I ever did. He w- because when he was in the Screamers. Oh okay. We did that. Mo- we did a movie for uh, a long oh, form video. Population one. Yeah, Population one. Madonna <laughs> versus Prince. What was the compare and contrast working with them? Um, Madonna is an extraordinary businesswoman who is fantastic i mean for, as a woman she was an incredible role model she doesn't take any shit she's really funny 
Um, she never let men push her around, and we got to see that. It was it was the first time I ever witnessed a woman put a record company executive in his place, and it was you know it was an extraordinary moment for me. What happened? Um, we were in a, a room full of record executives and managers, and we were getting screamed at because um, Madonna had gone with uh, the video concept for um, one of the videos directly to Mary Lambert, who was her, who had directed a bunch of her videos. And we came back with a budget that was $450,000. And at the time, her manager was like, you're going to bankrupt Madonna. You're gonna, ba- you know, and, and we're like, but you've made like fifty million dollars on this record. <laughs> <laughs> like, how are we gonna bankrupt her? And they're like, and, and I'm like, listen, I support you a hundred percent. If you want to um, invalidate Madonna's personal creative ideas and change them for her, I, I'm, I'm right behind you. You go ahead and tell her that. And is that what happened at the meeting? No. Well, what did she do at the <laughs> and meeting? That's a, that they were like. No, you tell her that, and we're like, no, when, when we're she, not going to tell her. When did she put the guy in his place? What so happened? she walked into the room, and she said, "What, what the fuck is going on?" And there, and the men said, "We're, we're torturing these girls a little, you know, we're to, because they they're over budget." And she said, "I approve the budget." And they're like, "No, no, you can't do that. That's our job. <laughs> we we are we control the budget." She's like, "I don't fucking care. They're, these are my friends. I trust them." I approve the budget. It's my money. Leave. And they were like, well, you, you know, you, you can't do that. You know, the, the scene where you have sex with the black Jesus, you know, that's not going to go over on (laughs) TV. And she's like, you, you know, you let me worry about MTV. That's my, my business. Your business is to leave. (laughs) <laughs> the room, and there they were like, "Come on, you're kidding!" And she's like, "I'm not fucking kidding. Get out!" And she's like, "You men, get out of here, and we girls are going to get some work done." And they left. And I have never laughed so hard in my life, and it was such a big mistake because you do not laugh <laughs> at men who are being castrated <laughs> your bosses what, what happened to you what happens as a result? well they didn't really ever forgive me <laughs> and I had to work for them a lot in the future so it just created a lot of problems for me but it was just so exhilarating to work for her she was she was you know really creative she was really hardcore I mean she's she's not the you know like cuddliest person in the world but um, she was always incredibly good to me and and all the women we worked with, and we had a almost totally uh, female production company, so it was great. And Prince was exactly the opposite. <laughs> I think we need to move towards wrapping this up. How did you guys get together? Oh, uh, uh, you need you're, you're you're not on the mic. Oh, there you are. Now you mic. are. Now you Nate, are. Nate doesn't want me to talk. Yeah. Nate, Nate's like, okay, you're a, first of all, you're a hot, you're a hot mess today, Susan Pinsky. You've got the dogs running around, the barking. You've got the bad. Skype with the phone calls, and I don't know how to make that better. Sorry, guys. But um, it, in my previous lifetime, before this month, um, <laughs> I was in a, a lose-to-win workout program at the gym, and 
Why, what made you go into the hardware business? Yeah. <laughs> and I met. <laughs> I bought some light bulbs from her the other day. Yeah. You did go not. fuck yourself, Bob. Okay? Just so I you know. Buy light no, bulbs he was cute. Me. He came down and saw me. He spent, I, I, he sent, you he, feel like you have to buy something if you I go know. there. Yeah, but he wanted to discount the counter. too. <laughs> but, anyways, we I met Sharon through my friend Lori, and, and she and I hit it off, and she runs faster than I do. Ah. She was always in first place, I was in second. Ah. And um, no, we just we do this workout at the gym where you go like three times a week, and it's a group of people, and it's really fun because you meet people. And, and you disappeared so to do hardware. Yeah, and oh yeah, and then I haven't worked out in a month because I've literally been driving back and forth to Tustin, California, to greet which a, is like an hour the from entire here, city of Tustin, who exactly. adored, I actually know where Tustin is. Adored my dad. Adored my dad. Land. Yeah, I've had 200, 300 people come in and shake my hand and say thank you so much for the forty and years of forty four years of service and, and crying, crying, and I've I've got some tape of them giving their testimonials the first week, and then I got tired of doing that because it was just so emotional and I was like selling hardware and trying I mean it wasn't about selling the hardware it was just about being there present for them because they're going to miss him so badly and they opened up an orchard hardware store next door so Timing and the rent's good. like $7,000 a month and they the new the do it best com, uh, hardware company will not honor another do it best hardware store there so I do have somebody who's interested in buying it, but I don't know what's going to happen I'm right now presently going to give it to Habitat for Humanity so on Tuesday awesome. I'm boxing up a hundred thousand dollars worth of hardware and I'm putting it in boxes and Bob you're going to come help by the way <laughs> I'll be there tomorrow uh, yeah I'll be there too I'll, be I'll there go there tomorrow you're going to go tomorrow I'll, you're going to help me help you box that we're that doing inventories great. tomorrow oh it's not it's not that good <laughs> no listen <laughs> never mind I'm really sorry I'm not available <laughs> we, we'd like you no, to help come. but it's not I, I, wash I my need hair. people I need bodies I'm, I'm doing inventory tomorrow and then I'm going to close for the weekend for Mother's Day weekend and then Monday I'm going to meet the pastor and set up as a memorial and then we're going to start packing it up and taking it to another store. There's a satellite Habitat for Humanity store in Santa Ana, which they will house all Denny's toys in for the next you know, whatever. I know the dog's outside. I put him outside. Put now him he's outside. in the front. He's now in the neighbor's yard. He's in the front yard. I Did know. your dad Sorry, think he oh was not going to? You guys have to sign out. I go get this dog. This <laughs> okay. So, anyways, that's why we're we're having hot mess. Welcome uh, week. to the Pinskys. I know. I, it should. It, we're we'll be able to pull it together. How does though. he get in the neighbor's yard? How does the dog get in the neighbor's yard? I don't know where he, I I guess the gate was open. I don't know. I think he's in the backyard. Drew's overreacting. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is what I like about this show. This is a glimpse into the perfect Drupinski's life. <laughs> Listen, I I just decided I was going to come home and do this podcast tonight because I I've been, you know, gone for so long, but I really really wanted Sharon to share her story because I just I know she had so much yeah. Information in this life that we just, you know, I I just sort of saw a glimpse of you post something on Facebook and I said, "Oh my god, you'd be the greatest guest." And I know you and Bob have been friends and I'd love for you to stay for the next episode and maybe talk a little bit more about that and how he's affected your life as well. If bef- you know where our next guest is coming, but we always try to like Hang carry in if over. You want. But anybody who's upset with the sound, I apologize or the dog barking or the or the door slamming or Drew yelling. I'm I apologize, but this will be the last time. He's oh, here. Oh, he's, he's not on. He's going to sign off with us. And now. with that, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to sign off. Dr. Drew is still <laughs> trying to find the other dog in the yard. <laughs> Have a good day. Bye, everyone. <laughs>
Hey, and a reminder, everybody, uh, you can check out thislifepodcast.com. And a reminder, today's episode is courtesy of Rocky Mountain Treatment Center. If you've been listening to anything that Bob and I have been talking about over the years, you know that we're very particular about addiction treatment. We don't uh, take recommendations lightly, so we've looked into these guys pretty carefully. And the Rocky Mountain Treatment Center happens to be one uh, I am able to recommend, and I'm happy to do so. They focus on individualized treatment of the patients, uh, including their entire well-being based on a biopsychosocial model. That's what Bob and I have done for years and years. Uh, They don't just look at addiction. They look at the psychiatric issues, the psychological issues, the trauma issues, all aspects of the physical and mental health. And, of course, you've uh, heard me stress the importance of this uh, for long-term success. There's staying sober, but there's what I call real recovery, which is dealing with all the risk factors that set people up for bad addiction. They're in Great Falls, Montana. It's a 26-bed facility surrounded by amazing Montana landscape. Patients can have a range of recreational therapies, including equine therapy. For more information on Rocky Mountain Treatment Center, click on their banner on the thislifepodcast.com website or at drdrew.com or visit their site at rocky.rehab. That is simply R-O-C-K-Y dot rehab. Just takes a night, it's all 